So today we're going to be back in Genesis 18. We'll have the verses on the screen. I always encourage you to open up your own Bible, follow along, or you can have one of the Bibles uh, in the pews in front of you if you do not have one. It's Genesis, so it's at the very beginning all the way to the left. We'll be in 18 in the back half as we continue our series on uh, the life of Abraham, uh, which we've called the difficult journey of faith because his life uh, in growing in faith was difficult. And there's times where he got it right and shows us what it is to live by faith. And there's times that he just failed miserably. And it shows us how not to live by faith. And the goal of this is for us to learn how to live by faith because it tells us in Hebrews that without faith, you cannot please God. And it should be the desire of every person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior to please God. And so I pray that we're growing in faith through this. Now, last week, as we saw in the first half of Genesis 18, we saw the Lord, Jesus Christ, and his two angels come to visit Abraham and his wife, Sarah. You know, remember, if you're, maybe you're new to the church, that Jesus did not just show up in a manger uh, in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. He showed up from the beginning of time. So we talked about in 1 John, so we talked, or in John even, which we talked about in Colossians. He is a part of creation. He was part creating the heavens and the earth that we are part of now. He has been around for a long time. And we see him in glimpses, even in the Old Testament, coming down and working out God's will in the life of his people. And so he comes with these two angels, and they sit with Abraham, and, and, and they eat together, and they tell his wife Sarah that she was going to have a child within a year's time. And this was one of the reasons, one of the two reasons that the Lord and the angel came. Because Sarah was barren for her entire life. And so he came to remind her that, look, I've been making these promises and it's been many years, but this next year they're going to be fulfilled. Because nothing is impossible without who? Without God. Without God. So that was the first reason. We talked about that last week. Now today we're going to look at the second reason that the Lord Jesus and his angels came to visit Abraham and Sarah. And it wasn't to deliver a message of hope, but it was to bring judgment. Let's read the text and then we'll break it down. Starting in Genesis 18, and we're going to start in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still, still stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that they, the righteous, fare the same as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are righteous and are, are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, not let the Lord be angry, and I will speak but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. And I need a drink after all that text. So as the Lord and his two angels and Abraham leave his home, they, they begin their journey and while they're traveling, the Lord poses this question. He says in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, at first, it looks like God's like trying to decide whether to tell Abraham or not. Like he's just, I just don't know. But it's obvious that the Lord's going to tell him because Abraham is literally walking right next to him. It's not like Abraham is back at camp and, and, and the Lord is huddled with his two angels going, ah, do you think I should tell him or not? He's, Abraham's literally right there as he's saying this. It's almost like the Lord is prepping Abraham for what he is about to tell him. Like, you ever sat with somebody and you're like, oh, I got something to tell you, but I'm not sure I'm gonna, if I should tell you or not? When really you are going to tell them. Like, it's not a question. You're going to tell them. I think it's, it, it's, it's the same way here. He, you know, he's getting Abraham's attention. Because your curiosity, when someone says that to you, you're like, what? What are you going to tell me? What are you going to tell me? Now, what is the reason for this trip? What is, he, what is he going to share with Abraham? Well, we read it here in verses 20 and 21. He said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I'm going to know. Now, once again, this can be a little bit confusing if you're new to the Bible, because at face value, this reads like God's distant from his creation, like he was up there golfing in heaven, and Peter came, you know, or somebody came running and said, hey, Sodom and Gomorrah's not looking too good, and he hops in his golf cart to come down and check it out. But we know from other scriptures that this is not the case. Psalm 139, 1 through 2, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, and you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Or 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the, the heart. 
And Apostle John, in 1 John, he says, God knows literally everything. As one of my favorite sayings is, nothing has ever occurred to God. So it's not an issue of God coming down to investigate things for himself. He's simply communicating to Abraham in a way that it helps Abraham understand God better as he takes on this role of judge. And you see an echo of this like uh, with the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11 where, where God says, it says that God came down to see what mankind had been doing. It's, it's a text that's implying God's direct attention. Like, I'm paying attention to this. His direct involvement in this. And what's this involvement? What's this does it demands his attention? It's the outcry. And the Hebrew word, which I cannot pronounce for the life of me, it, it means to describe oppression and injustice. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel, he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. He listed their sins as self-centered pride neglecting the poor and the needy and doing unnamed detestable things. And now, as we're here in Genesis 18, we see that God's patience has run out. Now, even though the text does not spell out Lord, the Lord actually saying to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom, it's obvious Abraham got the gist of what's happening because of the way that he responds. Let's go back to verse 23. Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are, are 50 within the city, righteous. When will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous would fare, be treated the same as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Abraham's struggling here. He's like, how can a holy God wipe out the righteous with the unrighteous? And he's really saying this to God, like, who are you? This, you cannot, this is not, you can't do this. Now, this could seem like the beginning of a, a, a bad interaction, but moments like this, and you see this all throughout Scripture, are some of the best and most important moments in our lives when it comes to our relationship with God. When God is allowing or doing something that we, we cannot comprehend, that seems to go against what we, we think that we know about Him, these are the moments that actually can build our faith. In fact, I don't think our faith can be built without these moments. The Reverend G. Campbell Morgan, British minister, died in the 40s. He said this. He said, faith is the answer to a question. And therefore, faith is out of work when there is no question to be asked. You see, faith, our faith is built up when there are complexities in our lives that we cannot wrap our minds around. Where, where we read one thing about God and then we see something else and, and they don't match up. These are the moments where we're forced to turn to God with our questions. It's like, God, what, what's going on? I don't get this. It, it could be like a, a, a telephone call that shatters your world. It, it could be hurtful words that are spoken. 
a loss of a job, uh, some kind of tragedy, perceived injustice in the world, it, it could just, or the failure of your health, any, any long list of things that shakes your world. And when we're faced with something that challenges like our, our deepest uh, securities, and it rattles everything we ever thought that we knew about God, these are the moments where we can be driven to prayer. We're driven to the word of God to, to, like, to seek his face and, and to figure out like why would God do this or why would God allow this? Because not everything that happens, God did it, but everything that happens, God to some degree or another allows it. And these are the moments where our faith has the opportunity to grow. I say opportunity because we, we have choices. Sometimes when God shakes our world or allows our world to be shaken, I watch people walk away from God. I'm done. He cannot be real. So I just walk out of the picture. Or, like we see with Abraham, they go to God and say, God, this is who you are. This is what I see I don't know what to make of this. See, for our faith to grow, we have to work it out with God. We have to approach God and say, this is how I'm feeling. And we have to listen to how he responds to us in accordance with his word. Like, this is why I like what Abraham does here. I mean, he engages God. And when I say engage, he really engages him. I mean, look, look at the emotion of this text. He has, you remember, Abraham has family in Sodom with Lot. And he has other people that he's probably saved when, when he went to battle very chapters ago. And, and so the emotion, he's like, far be, be that from you. Like, this cannot be you. The judge of the earth would not do this. This is not just. This is essentially what he is saying to God. When is the last time you spoke to God like that? I ask this question because this reply by Abraham gives us like a new way to look at our conversations with God. Okay, for all of you who are distracted, it's rain. We have a broken pipe and it's dripping down, hitting it. So now you know what it is. It's not God tapping at the window. Actually, Tim, will you make a note back there for me to uh, ask uh, Dr. Haraka about this, the wise facility protector? <laughs> it's way off subject, but I was praying here the other morning to God by myself, and then it just like started coming down. It really freaked me out, but that's a different thing, right? <laughs> So when is the last time you prayed by this, back on subject? And I, and I point this out because I think Abraham gives us a new way to look at our conversations with God. I think far too often our prayers are therapeutic in nature. They're way too relaxed. Sometimes they're way too apathetic. You know, God, I, I pray for so-and-so that you would do this, or I pray for this, or I pray for that. We're not stirred up by our prayers. Now, listen, and don't get me wrong. I'm going to be very clear about this because I've, I've seen bad teaching on this. It's not that you cannot have quiet prayers because some of us were bigger personalities than others. But if they're always quiet because you're not stirred up 
then that's the problem. In fact, if you ever have trouble sitting in the presence of God and praying for any length of time, and you're just bored out of your mind, is it possible the reason is is because you're just not stirred up? There was this movie director once, and, he, and I can't remember what film it was. He said that the film started at 8 p.m., and he said he looked at his watch at midnight, and it was only 8.15. He felt like four hours had gone by and it had been 15 minutes. He was bored. It dragged. You ever been in that place? I mean, I mean there's been times where I'm praying, and like, I looked, I kid you not, I've done this once because I felt like I prayed for a long time, and it was like a minute 47. I felt this. I've experienced this. I bet some of you, if not all of you, have too. But I will tell you one thing. I, do n- I never recall a time in my life where I found prayer boring and where prayer dragged when I was stirred up with emotion and feeling for what I was praying. We should be praying with passion. When we're angry with God, we should express anger. When we're sad, we should allow that sadness to come out. We should allow the tears to flow before God. When we're happy, we should let it out. When we're determined, we should let that determination. When we're confused with God, I don't know what, I don't know what you're doing. Read the Psalms. David says this over and over again. The prophets say this like, God, we have no idea what you're doing. In fact, Jeremiah 20, verse 7. Listen to the prophet says. He says, Lord, you have deceived me. And I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. And if you understand the Hebrew there, it's like he got in a wrestling match with God, and God beat him up. He goes, I've become a laughingstock all the day, and everyone mocks me. Jeremiah, in this chapter, he was angry at God. He was livid at God. Because he thought God led him into tough circumstances. Just unknowingly blindfolded him and let him in, which Jeremiah was wrong, of course. God had done nothing of the sort. But like he's expressing this feeling about what is happening in his life. Do you talk to God like this? Do you allow your, the raw emotions of where you're at pour out before your maker? The interesting thing is in, in all the Bible, where you see prayers like this, the Old Testament, the New, you don't see God giving people rebuke for the way that they feel. Not that I can recall. He doesn't rebuke Jeremiah here. He doesn't rebuke Abraham here. God is not like humanity. Like he's not going to blow our statements out of promotion. He doesn't say to Abraham, you little peon, who are you to accuse me of being unjust? God is not easily offended like we are. He is not thin-skinned like we are. We're not going to hurt his feelings and he's going to run away and cry in a pillow. He's not going to be emotionally crushed by your words because he knows who he is. God can take it. And he probably he already knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're thinking and feeling. But we need to let it out for our faith to grow. We need to engage those feelings. 
Stuffing your emotions deep down has never done any good for anyone. Every time we hide them and we stuff them and we internalize them and we don't let them out, all it does is cause the relationship we have with somebody else to grow cold and to die. And it's the same with God. God wants us to come to him. He wants us to come to him and say, God, this is what I know about you and your word. This is what I see. Two plus two does not equal four. God, what is going on? I need to know. I can't, I can't get my arms, my head around this. Now, I would be remiss if I did not point out that even though God came, Abraham came to God with all of this emotion, He's not disrespectful. He's not flippant. He's very aware of who God is and who he is. I mean, do you see what he calls himself? Dust and ashes. He says, I'm just dust and ashes. Over and over again, he says, don't be angry. Don't be angry. If I can speak just one more time, don't step on me. So Abraham, he's pouring out his heart to God. He's almost accusing God of, of not being just. But he still understands his place. And even Jeremiah, when he was complaining to God, in the same conversation, four verses later, he says, in verse 11, he says, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble, and they will not overcome me. He's still humble and confident in his God. Now, what I find so interesting about these conversations and you, until you understand this, you will never have the fully intimate relationship with God and see him in the way that scripture tells you to see him until you get this. Like on one hand, Jeremiah, Abraham, they realize the greatness of who God is. He is somebody to be feared. And we, you know what? We don't even understand what it means to fear God. We have no idea what it means to fear God. We have never had him show up in our presence where we were overwhelmed with his glory like some of the people of the Old Testament will. We will one day. But they're so full of fear and yet they're so comfortable to just throw it out at him, all of his emotions. They have this perfectly balanced view of God. Some of us, we have this, when we don't read the Bible, we just have this picture of God as a big teddy bear, and then he's all about love and love and love, right? And we, I hear it all the time. I heard it just the other, Jesus, all he did was talk about love. No, 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 he did not. He also talked about hell more than anybody else, right? Now, the other half of some of us, we grow up with this view of God that if our bad outweighs our good, he is going to punish us and hurt us. And so we only fear God and we, we live and we communicate and we relate out of fear, even though scripture tells us that he is a loving father to all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So to have this kind of prayer life, just pour it all out on the floor before God, you have to understand the aspect he is to be feared. He is the alpha and omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, but he is also wants us to come to him like a loving father would. 
Some of you knew this. You, some of you, you were blessed enough. We weren't all, but some of you were blessed enough to have a father that you were afraid of. Like when mom said, wait till your father gets home, you straightened it right up. But you also knew that you could come to him anytime you needed something and he would be there for you. For those of you who were blessed enough to have this kind of father, this is how we view God. He is something to be feared, but he is also a father that begs us to come to him. And I, it is my prayer as I was working on this that God would give us, all of us, the eyes to see him as both, amen? Amen. Now notice I just used the phrase prayer life because this is literally what Abraham was doing. He was praying. He was praying for the righteous people of Sodom. He's like, God, save them. This is what the Bible refers to as intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. And is a very, very fancy way of saying praying for other people. Intercessory prayer, it's a, it's a very selfless act of seeking God's intervention and blessing for somebody else's needs or, or their concerns or, or their situation. And, and it's rooted in the belief that like God listens and acts upon the prayers of his people. And it, so intercessors, they, they act as mediators between God and, and the individuals or the situations that they're praying for. Paul encourages this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.1. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Let me say it again in 1 Timothy 2.1. I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Jesus taught he taught and exemplified the importance of intercessory prayer. He encouraged his followers to pray for one another and for the world. You can read the, the high priestly prayer sometime, John 17, when he, he prays for his believers. The Apostle Paul, he offered intercessory prayer for churches. He ministered to praying for spiritual growth, wisdom, and understanding. And praying for others, it's really, it's empathizing with the struggles and the challenges faced by others. Showing compassion and bringing their concerns before God. It's an act of love, and service, expressing care and support for those in need. Intercessory prayer can be practiced individually. It can happen in groups. Just last week, or was the week after last, I can't remember, we sat, me and some of the leaders from the church, we sat right here and we prayed for all of you. We prayed for the church. We lifted them up. We interceded for our church. But I want to be clear, this isn't just a, it's not just a leader thing. 
Okay, there's this erroneous idea in Christianity that those who offer up intercessory prayers are like a, a special class of Christians. They're the super Christians, right? Called by God to like this specific ministry of intercession. I've had this, I've been in churches. The ministry of intercession. The Bible is very clear that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to pray for one another. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And just as he intercedes for us in accordance to God's will, we are to intercede for one another. I say it again. This is not a privilege that is limited to the super elite of Christians. This is a command to everybody. In fact, the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament, he considered it a sin if he did not pray for God's people. He says in, in, in 1 Samuel 12, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I say the same for you and I. Remember, sin is, it's not about just the wrong things you do. It's about the right things that you don't do. Sin is to miss the mark. I say it again. The idea that intercessory prayer is a privilege and a calling for super Christians is without biblical basis. And it's, it's a horribly destructive idea that leads to the feelings of pride and superiority in the church. We are all called to pray for one another. You are called, if you sit here today, you are a Christian, that means Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Lord of your life, you're called to be an intercessor. You're called to lift up others in prayer. And let me say this. Something that's lost on us is it is a beautiful, beautiful and exalted privilege that we have that we can come boldly before God, before the throne of the Almighty, and that we can pray for other people. I mean, think about this. As we preach, the Bible tells us that prayer makes a difference in people's lives. Some things happen only by prayer. And God answers prayer. Did a whole series on this. Okay? And so if that's is true, and then it's true that God has given you the ability to pray for other people, to take this power of God and to insert it into people's lives according to his will, what an incredible gift and opportunity that we have. And I think that if that sat in our hearts a little bit more, we would pray more. Like I always tell people, one of my greatest fears, like when I get to heaven, that I'll be able to see how much a prayer impact, how much of an impact prayer really makes and the opportunities that I lost by not praying. I pray that the Lord would all give us a vision for how instrumental and how critical prayer is in the life of the believers when lifting up other people in prayer. So simply put, friends, I want us to become greater intercessors than we are now. The most valuable time that you will ever spend is on your knees in prayer. And so here are some 
ideas, some tips, some thoughts on how to put this into action. Because if we don't put the word of God into action, it's pointless. First, begin to pray with passion. Begin to allow your emotions to come out in your prayer. And man, I know this is harder for you than, and this is a little stereotyping, but on on par, it's harder for men to do this. I don't know how to get in touch with my emotions. Ask the Holy Spirit for help. If he can raise Christ from the dead, he can help you get in touch with God and your feelings. Right? So ask God, help me to connect with you. Help me to pour out my heart to you and pray it over and over and over again. Help me not to hold back. And let me tell you, if you want to have a prayerful prayer life, where you're playing with passion and emotion, pray for other people. Like this isn't in scripture. This is like 1 Jeff chapter 2, verse 8. When you pray for other people, I believe there is a greater, in my life, in passion than when I'm praying for myself. Now, you can't pray for yourself. It's good to pray for yourself. But man, when I'm, I'm seeking the Lord, I'm on my knees and they're going through something, I'm praying for them. I feel more connected to God than any other time. You could hear it the other night when we were all praying, the leaders praying. Now, some were louder than others, some were quieter, but you could hear the emotion as they were lifting up these things that they were so passionate about seeing in the church. It was one of those moments where we like started at seven. The next time I checked my watch, it was 8.15 and it seemed like it went 12 minutes long. It was a beautiful time. And let me tell you how to pray for people. When you hear somebody's needs, write it down. Or put it in your app, like I have a prayer app, or your notes, so that when you go to a time with prayer with God, you have it there. And find times to pray alone with God. I say this because sometimes we're timid to pray with emotion in front of other people. You know, and, and, and there's a time to say that not let it all fall out in front of other people because we can become a distraction when we get too crazy. That's another sermon. But start by getting that time, and it's not while you're driving to work. Get a time where you're alone and you and God, and you can get on your knees and you can pour out your heart to Him. Use your voice when you pray, pray out loud. There's a, for me, when I pray out loud, there's a way that I am in touch with my, how I'm feeling and my struggles much more than when I pray quietly. So if you struggle with this, try praying out loud. Use your voice. Also, pray for people when they come across your mind. You know, you ever had someone just pop into your mind randomly? It's possible that it's not that random that they came into your mind. Turn it to prayer. And even like you don't know nothing to pray for them, just pray generally for them. You know, if I've John come to my mind, it's, you know, and, and I'm sitting at my desk one morning, I don't know what he needs or what's going on. I said, Lord, I pray for John today as, as, he's, as he's selling cars to people, Lord, that you'll give him favor with his buyers. You'll give him patience with the process, Father. And Lord, that you'll be able to provide for his family. And Lord, that through the way that he works and talks, he'll, he'll lead someone closer to Jesus. Just pray for him in general, like he can only benefit. And sometimes you don't know what to pray. You, you, like you got someone in a situation you don't want to pray, Google a Bible verse. 
Literally, I tested this this morning at work. So I go, Bible verse for somebody who is physically ill. You're never wrong when you're praying according to Scripture. Here's another one. Make it a rule that every time you pray for yourself, you pray for somebody else. You know, if I get up in the morning, I'm here, I'm like, Lord, I pray for me today. Uh, help me get everything done I need to get done for your glory. Help me to trust in you. And then, which I do, but what I need to add more often is say, Lord, I pray for my wife. She's home. She's homeschooling a couple of the girls. She's, you know, has a toddler. Lord, I pray you give her strength and patience today. Always make it a rule. When you pray for yourself, pray for someone else. Here's another thing. Ask people to pray for you. Give them the opportunity to pour God's power into your life. Like last week, I got up here when I, when I, when I, I was so tired. Something hit in the first service, the back half, and I felt like I hit a wall. I don't know what it is. I was exhausted when I got up for the second service. And I said, look, I am just drop dead tired. I have no idea why. I feel like I got nothing in me. Would you pray for me that I have the power? And I tell you, that feeling went away, and I was able to pray, to preach with power, and I know it was because people were praying for me because I had people text me later, hey, you shared this. I want you to know I prayed for you. When we invite and share our troubles with somebody, we give them the opportunity to be a part of that process of God working, which is a blessing for us and for them. And then finally, parents, teach your children to pray. Every night, uh, it's not every night. I wish it was every night, but it's not. Most nights, it's not even most nights, sometimes it's only some nights. Anyway, when I remember, or I'm not too lazy, or I don't get distracted, I sit down, I pray with my kids when they go to sleep. And I always say, let's pray for one thing that we're thankful to God for. I have them pray it. And I said, ask God for one thing that you need God's help in. And I think what I really want to start adding is let's add one person that we can pray for. That we may be teaching our children to become intercessors. 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Amen. Lord, would you come up this morning? Will you, everybody else, will you stand? We're going to just take a quick moment to practice what I talked about. I want us just to pray for somebody. And if you don't know who to pray for, ask the Lord to give you someone to pray for. And if you, don't, if you don't hear anybody, open your eyes and pray for the person in front of you. Give this opportunity as she plays, just to, in a few moments, to practice praying for somebody. Struggle through it. Even if you don't feel like it, just keep struggling. And you're like, oh, I'm having trouble thinking of things. Lord, help me to think of things. Keep coming to him for help. Let's pray for someone right now. In Jesus' name.